At 6.05 p.m. on Wednesday, August the 1st, the I-35 bridge spanning the Mississippi collapsed. Our governor called this event a catastrophe of historic proportions. A Star Tribune reporter called it the biggest story in the world this week. We'll revisit that idea. But our nation's president and first lady and both of our senators flew from Washington, D.C. to visit the site, and so it was certainly a catastrophe of historic proportions. The story was headline news in all forms of media nationwide, and the story spread rapidly across the globe. The attention riveted to this tragedy far surpassed its actual magnitude on the world scene. Perhaps in part because, as one bewildered survivor put it, no one thought this would ever happen. Both senators declared to television cameras that bridges in America are not supposed to collapse. Unbelievable was the response of our nation's First Lady. It all led me to ponder this week, how would Jesus interpret these events? Filled with selfless compassion and loving grace, Jesus would certainly grieve with those who grieve. But seeing life from Jesus' perspective, perhaps the most shocking thing, the most shocking aspect of this tragedy, is that it is so shocking to us. Jesus interpreted tragedy in a wholly different light than is common in our fallen world. We witness that interpretation clearly in Luke chapter 13. I invite you there, where Jesus responds to news of two tragedies in his world as he walked this planet and ministered. And we learn from our Master's teaching how we should interpret such events and where our hope should rest. Jesus is followed by a great crowd of people at this place in the Gospel of Luke. The only one who records this particular exchange Jesus' popularity is great, but there are very few that are repenting of their sin and following Him in truth. And so this discourse in chapter 12 and into chapter 13 is peppered with calls for repentance and to understand the presence of divine judgment in this world that is coming. There is a call for repentance throughout. You might notice just in verse 12, verses 4 and 5, which speaks very starkly to that point. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. As Jesus ministers and speaks here to his disciples, to the followers, to those who are listening, there are some who come up with a news report of a great tragedy, chapter 13 and verse 1. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. The Greek text indicates here it's more descriptive than the English and indicates that these people arrived with a fresh news report. The historical record does not preserve the details of this incident for us. We do know that Pontius Pilate ruled as the Roman governor of Judea and that he possessed a well-oiled reputation for enforcing Roman law with ruthless zeal. We also know that the only time that a Galilean would be, giving, would be involved in sacrifice in this way would be at Passover. 
And so perhaps it was when they leaned over and slit the throats of their sacrificial lambs that Roman soldiers came up from behind and executed them, mixing their blood with the blood of their sacrifices. And people come and tell Jesus of this news event. Shocking news. Jesus responds in verse 2 as he answers, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus speaks in a sense in outline here, and it takes a bit to unpack what he means. But he is not saying that if we repent of our sin, we will be assured never to die a tragic death. If that's what he meant, what would he answer? He would say yes. He would say in the affirmative. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? Yes, they were. And if you don't repent, you're going to perish just like they did. But he says no. Their thinking is wrong. Jesus does not answer his rhetorical question in the affirmative, but he says the issue is not that these people were worse sinners. The issue is that every unrepentant sinner will die a tragic death. Every one of them. Does Jesus lack compassion for these victims? Uh, Clearly not. And he demonstrates his heart over and over with his compassion in the midst of tragic death. Does Jesus disregard Pilate's crime? No, it's just not the issue at the moment. He is striving to bring these people to understand that they must turn from the wrath of God and repent. And here is a story that he uses to press that point. He narrows the focus in on theology. Not on compassion here. Not on justice here. But on repentance. Rather than showing shock, Jesus takes this opportunity to teach them and to teach us that tragedy serves as prophecy. The wages of sin is death, and so death is not extraordinary. In Adam, all die one way or the other. And so let's get this straight, says Jesus. It matters not how or when you die. What matters is whether or not you escape the judgment of God. That's what really matters. There's a far greater tragedy than suffering a violent death, and that is to suffer the wrath of God, chapter 12 and verse 5. I will tell you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. That's what Jesus is saying. If God casts you into hell, it makes no difference how you end up there. And Jesus now supplies his own news clip to drive the point home further. Verse 4. Those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Sounds strangely familiar, doesn't it? Again, we have no certain historical information with respect to this tragic event. We do know that the stone tower of Siloam was situated on the southeast corner of the wall of Jerusalem. There was digging that went on in that area. Historical records have shown an aqueduct was uh, built there. Apparently, a structural failure led to its sudden collapse one day, and 18 mangled, lifeless bodies were pulled from the rubble. Jesus repeats his disagreement with the common interpretation of that collapse. When he says in verse 4, 
The middle of the verse, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. There's a sizable gap between the worldview that operates in our day and the worldview that operated in Jesus' day. A fairly sizable gap. And we need to labor to overcome it for a moment. The Jews generally interpreted tragic death as a direct judgment of God upon an unusually evil sinner. Now, there were reasons for that, which we don't have time to go into, but Jesus emphatically rejects this interpretation of events. We stop and ask the question. Again, we must fill in the blanks in what Jesus is saying here. Does God ever take the life of a sinner in direct judgment? Yes, he does. He takes the life of an unbeliever in direct judgment in Acts chapter 12, verses 20 through 23. Herod is brought down immediately and tragically because of his sin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, in verse 30, we read of believers whom God takes out of this world because they are walking in sin. They are, we would believe, in heaven today, but they were disciplined in death. That's not what Jesus is saying, that God never takes someone in death, in discipline or judgment. But Jesus emphatically rejects the interpretation that everyone who dies tragically is being singled out for divine judgment. This is just not the case. And Jesus' words make perfect sense to us. The first thing that comes to our minds, I don't think, certainly as a culture, but even as biblical Christians, when we see people die tragically in a bridge collapse, the first question that comes to mind is not, boy, how evil must they have been? Why is that the case? One reason we don't think that way is because of the influence of Jesus Christ upon this culture. Because let me tell you, there are many, many cultures in this world that would think exactly that. Those people who died on that bridge were cursed by the gods, is the interpretation many people would give to such events. We have been influenced by the teaching of Jesus, and our minds don't go there very naturally. I know there are some who do within our culture, but not the culture at large, and not biblically-minded believers, I don't think, because they know the teaching of Jesus. But there's a, a wrong reason why our thoughts don't go there. Our problem as a culture is that we no longer believe that God judges anyone. And on this point, we are just as mistaken as the Jews Jesus addresses here. As Jesus says in verse 5, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. There are many who do not repent, and there are many who will perish. As Jesus insists in verse 3, tragic events prophesy the divine judgment that will fall upon everyone who does not repent, no matter how gently or how violently they happen to exit this life in the providence of God. Unrepentant sinners will perish. That is the point. That is, they will face divine judgment, which is eternal suffering in separation from God, or what the New Testament later calls the second death. Revelation 20 and verse 14. Now, Jesus does not linger here to spell out all of the theological details. He simply warns us in light of tragic events to remember that we will all perish if we do not repent. And that's what we should see 
in such tragedy? What does it mean to repent? To repent is a change of heart that motivates us to turn from our sin and to embrace in faith the forgiveness and call of Jesus Christ upon our lives. It means to renounce our sin. It means not to hold on to this world and the sin of this world as an idol. It means to release it. And positively, it means to trust in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is, I believe, how the gospels would fill out this question. It means to trust that Jesus Christ died to pay the penalty of sin. To realize that He bore the wrath of God and satisfied that wrath. It means to trust in the resurrection of Jesus who won the victory over sin and death. To turn from this world and our sin. To turn from self and all of the idolatries of this world. And to embrace the grace in Jesus Christ and His saving mercies to us as sinners. Such repentance, John the Baptist reminds us, is to bear fruits in keeping with that repentance. Repentance is not self-reformation. It's not quitting every sinful habit in order to make yourself worthy of God's love. Repentance is not praying a prayer to receive Jesus and then going on your merry way to live as you please. Repentance is, as we pictured it before, sinking in the mud. In mud that is enveloping you and drawing you down and will take your life. And in that moment, you turn from the mud. You change your mind about who Jesus Christ is and you reach out your hand and you take His saving grace. You don't get all cleaned up first. But you say, I want out of here. And I want Him. We are born by nature to say, I want to stay here and I don't want Him. Repentance is a complete reorientation of the direction we're headed. On the broad road, to change the analogy, headed on the broad road that leads to destruction. We change our mind and we head with Christ on the narrow road that leads to life. The power at issue here is the hand of Jesus and the strong arm of Christ who pulls us from the mud. Not us. Repentance is not an act where the focus comes on who we are and what we are doing and how we are cleaning up our life. The focus of repentance is simply reaching out in faith to Christ who is the rescuer and pulls us out. And when He does, He cleans us up. There are fruits in keeping with righteousness. One who says, I have repented of my sin and I have trusted Christ as Savior and lives like the devil is still in the mud. He pulls us out so that we would live righteously. And when that project begins through saving faith, it continues through sanctifying faith. He continues to transform us. But back to the moment and back to the scene. Jesus refers to this tower that collapses to 18 who die. And he uses it to call us to repentance, saying that there is something in that tower collapse that should be speaking to you in this fallen world. And I think we can draw out two specific ideas here. Maybe two hooks on which we can hang such tragic events as we have witnessed this week and will continue to witness. Work with me on this for a few moments. The first is that tragic events prophesy divine judgment. 
Tragic events prophesied divine judgment. Tragedies did not shock Jesus. He taught us that tragic events serve to remind us of the pending judgment of God. Every time you cross a bridge, there's only one thing that gets you across safely. It's got nothing to do with inspectors or engineers. The one thing that gets any of us across a bridge is the mercy of God. Period. Now we can put God to the test. Crossing a few bridges in my life, I think I've probably done that. But I don't care how strong it is. I don't care if it was built yesterday. Only the mercy of God gets us across any bridge. The only reason that you will continue to breathe, the only reason that your heart will continue to beat until you leave this place today is the mercy of God. The wages of sin is death. Yet every day sinners go about living most never realizing that God points a drawn bow at their heart and nothing but His grace holds Him back from letting that arrow fly. To borrow an analogy from Jonathan Edwards. That's every moment of every day. The reason that we find a bridge collapse so shocking and unbelievable is because we trust more in bridges than we trust in the mercy of God. Me too. Tragedies shake us awake to the reality of death, and they get our attention because they are right there in front of us. The newspaper reporter called the bridge collapse the biggest story in the world this week. From a media perspective, perhaps, but do you know when he typed out those words on his keyboard? 20 million Southeast Asians have been rendered homeless or cut off from their homes in massive floods. 230 people have died, and many more will die through disease, waterborne disease, and perhaps further drowning. Many are starving to death. And as he types that out on his keyboard, we probably pretty much all believed him. This was the most important event in the world this week. Because it's happened here. Now this bridge tragedy is genuinely tragedy. There are two boys in this town whose mother didn't come home on Wednesday night. And we should grieve and weep with them. It is tragedy. But we must face the reality that tragedy is normal in a sin-cursed world. To minimize in no way those who have suffered and died, you put together the number of people that have died and suffered in the event that we have seen this week, this past Wednesday. And 20 million people cut off from their homes, many starving to death. How quickly we forget that just two and a half years ago, over 150,000 people perished in tsunami waves. We forget that. The numbers are so staggering, I think we simply set it aside. God knows this. And I don't mean to minimize the magnitude of what has happened here this week at all, but we better wake up and realize this isn't anything unusual. And how sad it must be in the mind of God to see a bridge like this collapse. 
and to realize that people are responding by fearing deficient bridges and pointing fingers. If we see reality, we should fear God and repent. But there is more than warning here in Jesus' words, isn't there? I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Tragic events are prophecy. They prophesy what is pending, what is coming. But divine judgment is escaped through repentance. That's the hope that resonates from his words. If we fail to repent, we will perish tragically. The logical inference is that if we do repent, we will escape the second death. For those who repent of their sins, for those who place their faith in the salvation Jesus has purchased by his death and resurrection, we have freedom from the punishment of sin. Have you been born again? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Have you turned from your sin to embrace the salvation that is in Christ crucified and risen? If not, you better take a careful look at that bridge. I don't say that to be an alarmist, to be dramatic. I say it because it's reality. I would plead with you, don't ever cross another bridge in this world. Do not leave this building today without turning from your sin and trusting the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior because there is nothing that keeps you out of hell but His mercy. The mercy of the one you are spurning. That's insanity. Turn from your sin and embrace the salvation in Christ. Every second you live in rejection of God's saving grace, you move one step closer to final catastrophe. For those of us who have embraced that forgiveness, there is peace and there is no more fear. I don't know that we put that into practice in our Christian life as we ought, but it is there. That power, that freedom from fear, that confidence in God is there, and it can resonate within us every moment of every day. Let's consider it together. Having been saved through the death and resurrection of Christ, having been delivered by Him, we can say in Romans 8 and verse 1, I invite you to turn to just a few passages together as we consider this freedom that we have in Christ. Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no perishing in our future because of the work of Christ for us. So that Paul can end this chapter or end this thought in verse 38. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is nothing we fear, nothing that can take our life that will ever separate you from the love of God if you are in Christ. You can go down in a bridge, you can go down in a hail of fire, you can die of a disease, you can sink in a ship, you can die in any tragic way you can imagine, and you are covered in the love of Christ and secure in that event. And this should have real implications in our life, not just theory. Matthew chapter 14 
I really don't think that Jesus was ever accused of being an easy teacher. There were times that he really made it tough on his followers. And this is one of them. I think we've looked at one in Luke 5 in some respect, or Luke 13 in some respects. But here he gets really difficult as a teacher with his students, his disciples. Matthew 14 and verse 35. I'm sorry, verse 22. Immediately he made the disciples go into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, and the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, Come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Why did you doubt? In a parallel passage, Jesus rebukes them for their lack of faith. Here, pointedly to Peter, You of little faith, put yourself where these disciples are. You're in a boat in the middle of a sea, a large lake one that's notorious for its difficult storms. From everything you know about life on this lake, you're dead. The waves are pounding, the wind is blowing, you're going down with this ship. And Jesus rebukes them for a lack of faith. I often think, you know, he's being kind of hard on these guys. Wouldn't you be afraid If you were in the middle of a sea and were about to be swamped and knew you were dead? I think Jesus is not being hard on them as much as he is seeing reality. The judgment of God is far more terrifying than drowning in a storm. And the salvation of God renders us invincible until our Heavenly Father ushers us home into His eternal presence. Why don't you trust God? You trust Him with your salvation. Can you not trust Him with the details of your life? He did not spare His Son, but crucified Him for your salvation. How could you not trust Him in crossing a bridge or going through a storm or facing death in any situation? It's it's hard. I realize why we fear. We all do. Some level, we're all going to probably cross that place where our faith proves weak and we are afraid in the midst of death. The reason is because our faith in God is weak. Jesus could sleep in a boat that was in the midst of a storm because he knew he'd never die. In one sense of the word, John 11 and verse 25, he would never die. At the funeral of Lazarus and the resurrection of Lazarus, 
Jesus says to Martha in 11.25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Clearly referring in verse 25 to physical death. Though he dies, he will live. In fact, eternally, from God's perspective, everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. The second death cannot touch us. Obviously, in the midst of a tragic situation, in the midst of a frightening situation, there will be a level of natural fear because of the weakness of our faith. But we must learn to walk in, the faith, in faith in the God who has secured our eternal destiny. The I-35 bridge was deemed structurally deficient. They were looking for evidences of cracks, corrosion, and fatigue. When I heard those words, I thought, that, my friends, that right there, that's our world. It's filled with cracks, corrosion, and fatigue, and it is structurally deficient. It is not going to stand the test of time. It's not going to hold up under the strain of sin. It's passing away, and so is every one of us. But for those whose sins are forgiven, Jesus secures our destiny, and we will never die, no matter what happens, no matter what tragedy we may pass through. Whether we gently enter His presence or do so violently, beyond this life, there is nothing but life for those that are in Christ. And so there is no fear, ultimately. No condemnation. No death. Just resurrection beyond. We can cling in faith to that as we cross every bridge, as we take every breath, as we enter into this world to do whatever God gives us to do. If He has sent us there, if it is His design, if He has willed that we walk a certain way, we are invincible until He calls us out. Never to put Him to the test, but we're invincible. We sung that this morning. Did you hear it? Do we believe it? Perhaps one of the favorite songs of this congregation is In Christ Alone. Think of the fears of this world. Think of the dangers of this world, which all of us at some time or another have passed through. I would imagine, in fact, that if we stood, those who passed over that bridge within 24 hours of its collapse, I would imagine we would have a very vast number of people, percentage-wise, in this place that would stand up and say, I was over there in 24 hours. That means it was ready to go for a long, long time, and we've passed back and forth and back and forth. Think of the dangers of this world, and think of the words that we sing, and the solid ground of Christ crucified and risen. In Christ alone, my hope is found. Not in bridges. Not in inspectors. Not in engineers. Not in the securities of this world. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song, this cornerstone, this solid ground. Firm through the fiercest drought and storm. He is firm when everything else is moving and shaking, and falling apart. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving cease. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones He came to save. 
till on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid here in the death of Christ I live. Not in the securities of America. Bridges aren't supposed to fall down. You take a good look at every bridge in this world, every last one of them is going to fall down. It's just a matter of when. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. So that now no guilt in life, no fear in death, this is the power of Christ in me. Here it is. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I stand. We sing it often, how powerful it is. The greatest of all tragedies is that of a sinner who rejects the call of Jesus Christ and goes on living in the insecurity of sin, stripped of all hope and all security, and barred from heaven. That is the greatest tragedy. The greatest joy and confidence in this life is to know that we are forgiven and to know the one who judges sinners has been satisfied that we have been reconciled with Him, that our sin has been atoned, and that on the firm foundation of Christ crucified and risen, we stand through any storm. And may we traverse every bridge and live every day in utter confidence that our salvation in Christ has saved us forever from the sting and the fear of death by His mercy alone. Let's bow for prayer.